0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: The following program contains
2: adult content, explicit language, and sexual themes. Listener discretion is advised. And it contains murder. Lots and lots of Murder. Stinking bastard. People yeah. tell me, so are telling me, you going to go down and go to hell. I am you're somewhat wrong. Stand up for 911, where's your
3: emergency? Oh, this is shady. We're pretty one work. Talk to the road. What's Send the, problem?
0: the police. Send
2: the police. And he goes, don't be a hero, mate. And I
0: said, I'm not trying to be a hero, but the police are
2: coming. One in the chest, one in the hip. Fired by Detective Sergeant Roger Rogerson. I was uh, branching out, that's when the cannibalism started eating the heart and uh, the arm muscle. I would have nailed Carr Williams' hands to a coffee table and, this and just pulled it out of his backside.
3: Carl Williams is a wobbly bottom little cherub of the face, cherub face little boy
2: who, 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 who's, who's light with me. I'd harm someone he time I'd kill someone. would be an enormous amount of uh, Especially for first. An uh, enormous amount of ill remorse afterwards, but then that impulse to do it again to come back even stronger. Mary Ellen Samuels masterminded a plot to have her husband Bob killed for insurance money and then organise the murder of the man she paid to get it done. This case is a wild ride of amateur hitmen, shopping sprees, limousines, cocaine parties, male strippers, personalised number plates, a subway franchise, and a talking parrot who was trained to curse at the police.
1: When Sydney Shelley and his wife Elva were found decapitated in their home on April twenty third, nineteen sixty, their heads were nowhere to be found. Known as the Headless Bodies Case, this horrific double murder would go on to spark a macabre fascination worldwide. Hi, I'm Barney Black.
2: And I'm Tara Saraban.
1: And this is Bloody Murder.
2: We're a comedy true crime podcast focusing on some of the lesser known crime stories from Australia. And
1: indeed around the globe.
2: Now, of course, this episode is brought to you by our wonderful and generous patrons. If you'd like to become a patron, go to our website for details. That's bloodymurderpodcast.com.
1: All right, Tara, I believe it's time for you to get murdery.
2: Mary Ellen Gurnick and Robert Samuels grew up living a block away from each other in Santa Ana, California. He developed an infatuation with her when he was eight years old. And like herpes, it never went away.
1: Can't you spray it with that herpes be gone?
2: Um, Do you have any? Asking for a friend (laughs) No,
1: why would I have any, Tara?
2: (laughs) Mary Ellen had a pretty happy childhood, complete with a dog named Patches and trips to Disneyland
1: Did Patches get to go to Disneyland?
2: No She was a popular girl who was vivacious and flamboyant enough to land the lead role in the high school play Bob was more low-key than Mary Ellen, which wasn't hard as even most drag queens were more low-key than Mary Ellen He loved photography and spent a lot of time honing his craft Following their graduation from Santa Ana High School, they lost touch with each other. After studying and working hard, Bob landed his dream job as an assistant camera operator in Hollywood, working on many well-known films such as The Colour Purple, Heaven Can Wait, Lethal Weapon 2 and Short Circuit. Oh, I love that when I was a kid.
1: Assistant camera operator, hey?
2: Yeah, he was like, one day I am going to be an assistant camera operator.
1: Well, he probably gets to pull some focus sometimes. He
2: would be pulling pretty much all the focus. Mm-hmm. Mm. Also like a drag queen (laughs) Also like a drag queen I've been watching way too much RuPaul's Drag Race Except there is no such thing as way too much RuPaul's Drag Race In the meantime, Mary Ellen got married and had a daughter named Nicole Bob and Mary Ellen met again in late 1979 Following the breakup of her first marriage She was very impressed with Bob's Hollywood credentials And the fact that he knew celebrities and celebrity robots
1: Oh, like number five Yeah, it's alive Short circuit, yeah That's true I would like to meet that robot.
2: Well, you know, maybe if you make the right connections. Maybe if you tell everyone you're a podcasting god. After they laugh, they might introduce, <laughs> introduce you to some kind of robot. Bob was also invited to fancy events and parties. Mary Ellen was attracted to the finer things in life and felt that she deserved them. After all, she worked hard at being slim and beautiful and enticingly dressed. Bob still held a torch for Mary Ellen, and he was thrilled that she was interested in him too.
1: His torch was still burning brightly?
2: It was. Oh, you're so lyrical. Sometimes I forget. In 1980, at the age of 32, Bob and Mary Ellen got married. He adopted her young daughter, Nicole, and raised her as his own. Being married to his dream girl and having a good career, Bob thought finally he had everything that he'd always wanted. But things didn't stay peachy for long. No? They never do. He's got
1: a beautiful wife, he's got celebrity robots as friends. I
2: know, what could possibly go wrong?
1: Well, tell me. Tell me what goes wrong.
2: Mary Ellen always wanted to go out shopping and partying and complained about the long hours Bob worked and also that he regularly had to go away on location for film shoots. To give Mary Ellen something to do, Bob bought her a Subway franchise. Hey, keeping the wife happy. That'll keep her busy. She thought that putting processed meat and salad on bread rolls was beneath her and ran the joint more like a cool place for her and her teenage daughter to hang out with their friends. It wasn't long before she was dipping into the till to pay for expensive shopping trips. Bob and Mary Ellen rowed about her lavish spending habits and the way she ran the business, breaking up several times and getting back together again. After six years of marriage, Mary Ellen dumped Bob, leaving him a Dear John letter on the kitchen table.
1: She got his name wrong?
2: You know what a Dear John letter is, don't you?
1: His name's Bob.
2: Yeah, his name is Bob.
1: I've, ne- I've never got a Dear John letter. I, I've got lots of Dear Barney letters. You're rubbish, I'm out of here.
2: Well, I don't think they say Dear Barney. They say Yo Fuckhead usually, don't they? <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, Yo, Yo fuckhead. fuckhead. I'm out of here. Yeah, I'll answer to that too. Okay,
2: so she got a Yo Fuckhead letter. She oh. wrote him one. Oh,
1: now it makes sense. Yeah,
2: don't you think? So in the letter, she complained that the marriage had gone stale, like so many uneaten Subway rolls. <laughs> It also said, no matter what happens or what you think of me now or later, I will always care for you. We just can't live together. Bob, being magnanimous, bought a condo for Mary Ellen and Nicole to live in. On October 31st, 1986, Mary Ellen filed for divorce. She continued to work in the Subway restaurant and she and Bob had an arrangement put in place for shared custody of their schnauzer, which was probably named Graham. They lived apart for the next two years. Bob continued to pay for her daughter's private school and supported Mary Ellen emotionally and financially. He hoped Mary Ellen would curtail her partying and decide she wanted to work on rebuilding their relationship. He was even reading self-help books on how to save your marriage. He eventually accepted the fact that Mary Ellen had no interest in changing her party girl habits and the marriage was really over. On Halloween 1988, Bob went to his divorce attorney, probably dressed up as Hulk Hogan, and signed a document seeking changes to his divorce agreement and wanting to reduce spousal support payments. Realising she would be a hell of a lot richer as a widow than as a divorcee, Mary Ellen had been trying to solicit people to murder Bob, and she wasn't very subtle about it. Hey, you, over there, you in the green shirt. Want to murder my husband? I'll pay you.
1: What do I say to that? No.
2: (laughs) What about you, fella? That's a nice moustache. Want to murder my husband? No. (sighs) Yeah, so, I mean, it wasn't going swimmingly. She came up with some pretty far-fetched and terrible murder plots, including killing him by dropping a 400-pound can opener on him at their Sherman Oaks Subway shop and cutting his body into pieces to be shipped around the world. I mean, terrible ideas, especially when you consider the price of postage. Around this time, Mary Ellen's mini me daughter, 16 year old Nicole, started seeing a 24 year old man named Jim Bernstein, who worked in an electronics store and was a cocaine dealer. His business card simply listed his occupation as specialist. Hey, baby, I'm a specialist. Mary Ellen didn't care about their eight year age difference or his career choice. Jim was very taken with Nicole and wanted to make her happy, buying her many expensive gifts to keep her in the style she was accustomed to. When Nicole got engaged to a drug dealer, Mary Ellen had no reservations. After all, she enjoyed the family cocaine discount. When out drinking in clubs with her underage daughter, Mary Ellen would openly ask people if they would kill Bob. Nicole also asked several of her schoolmates if they'd do the deed as well. At one point, Mary Ellen actually paid someone to kill him, but the guy just took the money and ran off.
1: Well, she's not going to go to the cops, is she?
2: Well, I wouldn't be smart. No. But if she did, she'd be flirtatious about it, <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> Unless she bought her parrot. David Navarro was a friend of Nicole's who asked Mary Ellen if she could bankroll his fledgling house hunting business. She refused, but said that she would pay him to kill her estranged husband and to get Oliver Peck to critique her tramp stamp. He rejected this idea. Mary Ellen figured out a way to leverage Jim's love for Nicole by telling him that Bob had raped and beaten both of them numerous times, starting when Nicole was 12. Now, there is absolutely no evidence of this being the case, and in her Dear John letter, which listed her complaints about the relationship with Bob and why she was leaving him, there's no mention of any of this. I mean, you're not going to say, oh, I just feel like the relationship's stale and leave out the whole bit about him raping and beating you and your young daughter. No, no. You'd put that in.
1: Yeah, in the no, the yo-fuck-wit.
2: In the yo-fuck-wit letter, yes. That's right. Jim was furious about these alleged abuses and accepted Mary Ellen's version of events and her offer to pay him $10,000 to organise Bob's murder. Jim told his boss at the electronics store, Charles Mandel, that he wanted Bob taken care of permanently because he was a child molester and a batterer. He even asked Mandel if he knew anyone who could take care of it. Now, you know, running an electronics store really makes you connected. So Mandel gave him the phone number of an unsavoury character named Mike Silver. Jim also asked a friend who owned a gun shop if he could get some weapons. Basically, he did everything short of hire a skywriter, going around talking to people about the fact he was going to have someone knocked. On December 8th, 1988, Mary Ellen told her BFF, Anne Hambly, that Bob was dead and that she planned to discover his body in two days. Mary Ellen went on to tell Anne that she could not believe that it had finally happened and said that she'd given Jim money six months earlier to arrange the murder. Again, with the talking about murders to people.
1: Yeah, no, don't do that.
2: Well, you know, maybe don't organise any, and if you do, don't do that. Yeah. There's an idea. The same day, Nicole called her friend David Navarro and said, It's done. My dad, he's dead. I saw him. Navarro replied, What are you calling me for? I don't want to know anything. And you do not have what it takes to be Ink Master. <laughs> On December 9, 1988, Mary Ellen and Nicole went to Bob's house. Apparently they were there to drop off Graham the Schnauzer.
1: To take him to Disneyland because Patches never got to go?
2: Yes, yes. If Patches could live vicariously through Graeme's rides on that teacup thing that spins.
1: Oh, yeah. Dogs love that shit.
2: Oh, yeah. <laughs> Theme parks. Poppy oh. would be so into the crowds. She wouldn't. Mary Ellen had left several messages on Bob's answering machine in the days prior to make it look like she didn't know he was dead. Nicole and Mary Ellen discovered his dead body and called the police. Bob had been disabled with some nasty blunt force trauma to the head and then shot in the head with a 16-gauge shotgun, which was fired through a pillow. Although the house had been staged to look like a robbery, nothing, including Bob's wallet, had been stolen. By the time the police arrived, Bob had been dead for over 12 hours. The police tested Mary Ellen and Nicole for gunshot residue, but they came up clear. They also had airtight alibis. Law enforcement struggled to find a motive for Bob's murder. They found he had no drug, alcohol or gambling addictions, no money issues, and he lived a low-risk lifestyle.
1: He sounds like a decent bloke, Bob.
2: Yeah, decent, hard-working dude. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't actually find any evidence that he was anything other than a pretty decent dude. Oh, yeah, okay. like there was nothing about him at all that was dark. Now, okay, this one's interesting. Um... <laughs> Mary Ellen flirted quite outrageously with the police the night she discovered her husband's body. She told one of the detectives, I like bald guys, <laughs> while rubbing his hairless head. Later, she was not so friendly to the police, even teaching her pet parrot to make profane remarks about them, like, fuck the popo" and "cops are cars. Fuck
1: you, baldy, fuck you, baldy.
2: <laughs> Motherfucking pigs. Motherfucking pigs.
1: Motherfucking pigs.
2: Um, Actually, we don't know what the parrot said because I couldn't find that out, but it was probably something like that. The day after Bob's body was found, Jim took out a $25,000 life insurance policy, naming his fiancée Nicole as the beneficiary. Oh, Jim, that was not a wise move. Unlike all the other wise things he's done. Mary Ellen collected on her dead husband's insurance policies and the total amount of them was around half a million dollars. In addition, she inherited their properties and the Subway franchise. Mary Ellen burnt through the money at an alarming rate. After her husband's death, she claimed she used the insurance money to pay bills and her lifestyle did not change. Yet she defaulted on her mortgage and failed to pay debts rung up by the sandwich shop. She also didn't pay for her husband's headstone. His grave would have gone unmarked if his sister Susan Conroy and his friends hadn't organised and paid for a headstone. That's pretty cold.
1: So, no headstone, not paying the hand bills as well.
2: Mary Ellen did, however, buy a condo in Cancun, rented limousines, took trips to Las Vegas, bought fur coats and custom-made outfits from a store called Trashy Lingerie. She also bought a Porsche and got a vanity plate that said "Nasty Vixen." <laughs>
1: Any sexy outfits for uh, Graham?
2: For Graham. Oh, yeah. Well, it was just after Halloween, right? Um, So they would have been on special. Um, She got him a slutty bee costume. Oh, yeah. And a slutty police costume.
1: Uh, Slutty doctor.
2: Yeah. Slutty fireman.
1: Uh, Slutty car mechanic. Yeah. I don't know how you do that, but Uh, uh... just,
2: just a bit of grease and a red bikini top.
1: And some cut-off overalls.
2: Yeah, it's pretty much what you're wearing now, Barney. <laughs> right,
1: okay. Oh, you, finally, you noticed my slutty mechanic costume.
2: Yeah, I've been noticing it all day. I just thought it might be rude to comment. I didn't want to be sexist.
1: Hey, baby, does your vehicle need a tune up? <laughs> oh, God.
2: <laughs> oh, sexy Barney. I, I pictured you on roller skates then. I was. <laughs> that would explain it. Uh, <laughs> uh, hey, baby. <laughs> Four months after her husband's murder, Mary Ellen threw a huge coke-fueled birthday party for herself at the Knollwood Country Club.
1: All the celebrity robots were there.
2: Oh, yeah, um, R2-D2. Oh,
1: number five.
2: Yeah. That, uh,
1: that one from Lost in Space.
2: Um, Chappie.
1: Oh, I love Chappie.
2: Yeah, Chappie's great. Oh. <laughs> Shortly after Bob's death, Mary Ellen took up with a new boyfriend who had an amazing name. His name was Dean Groover, and he was a music promoter who was a fixture of the L.A. club scene. Pleased to meet you. My name's Dean Groover. Sounds like a cool cat. He was so cool. (laughs) He'd go on to take a picture of Mary Ellen in a hotel room, lying on the bed with $20,000 in $100 bills covering her naked body which does not sound very hygienic to me.
1: No, and it wasn't very sexy too. I've seen no. that photo. <laughs> it
2: really was. It was quite comical. It's, you know, back in the day before you can actually see what the picture's going to look like. Um, and she's doing that thing where she's got the, the double chins happening. Yeah, the chin's you
1: know? going to her neck and it's, yeah.
2: Yeah, so it's kind of like, it's, it's, we'll put it up in our, on our Instagram and our Facebook page. It's, it's worth seeing, but sexy is not the word that comes to mind. Mary Ellen might have been considered sexy, but not in that photograph. But she was by no means smart. Telling her friend Anne that Bob had been killed by a man named Mike Silver, who Jim had hired. She's just given her all the details. Well, that's exactly what happened. Yeah, I know, but like, would you go around telling everyone like all the details of the way that you no, murdered your husband? No, Is this that's a good move? Silly. Makes it easier to get her to have a little sit down in old Sparky, but still. Hmm. Jim also made incriminating statements telling his employer that Bob's murder had been taken care of and that he received money from Mary Ellen to pay Silver for his part in the crime. By this time, David Navarro had become Jim's partner in a Sherman Oaks cocaine dealing business. Jim and Navarro were together once when Jim received a page, called the number that had been sent, and then went to meet Mike Silver, referring to him as the hitman. After Bob's death, Navarro made an anonymous call to the police and provided them with the phone number Jim received via the page and Mike Silver's name. Navarro also dropped the album Nothing Shocking with his band Jane's Addiction.
1: No, that's a different Dave Navarro.
2: Sorry, I'm getting confused. This David Navarro also explained to the police the roles played by Mary Ellen and Jim in relation to Bob's murder. After Navarro provided this information, the police searched Jim's and Silver's apartments but didn't find anything incriminating. Um, by then, Jim had like scampered off and they left a copy of the warrant at his place. Jim started confiding in friends that he was feeling remorseful and frightened of being caught. He was thinking of going to the police and confessing everything.
1: Ah, loose lips.
2: Mm hmm. Eat chips. Concerned by his big mouth and sooky demeanour, Mary Ellen told her BFF Anne that she wanted Jim killed because she thought he might disclose her involvement in the murder. She said she'd let a $2,500 debt Anne owed her slide if she found someone to get rid of Jim. In April of 1989, Anne introduced Mary Ellen to her live in boyfriend, Paul Gall. Yep, better call Paul Gall. Paul Gall. Paul Gall. Paul Gall.
1: Paul Gall. What is your name, Pogo?
2: No, it's Paul Pogol. Pogol. Paul Pogol. Pogo. Paul Pogol. What are you, a clown? <sighs> I'm going to get you murdered. Thank you. Uh, if you know that your friend is in the habit of having her hitman murdered, um, why would you want to get your boyfriend, Paul Gaul involved? I guess the motivation was all about the Benjamins. Mary Ellen told Paul Gaul that Jim had organised to have her husband, Bob, killed and was now blackmailing her. The lies just fly off her tongue, i got to say. Like so many, $100 bills fly off her boobies when the fan gets turned on in the hotel room. (laughs) Uh. She agreed to pay Paul Gall $5,000 for killing Jim. Paul Gall. Since Jim's life insurance policy was $25,000, it would not only pay for his murder, but there'd also be plenty left over with. Worried about being arrested, on Mary Ellen's advice, Jim goes and stays at Anne and Paul Gall's place. Mary Ellen told Paul Gaul that she was taking a trip to Cancun and wanted Jim murdered before she returned.
1: She also said, what are you, a fucking clown? Paul Paul Gaul?
2: (laughs) She totally said that. (laughs) To assist him in the murder, Paul Gaul solicited his mate, Daryl Ray Edwards. On June 26, 1989, Jim told his older brother that he was freaking out because he was the only person who could burn Mary Ellen. I guess that's why it was a good idea to go and stay at her best friend's house, right? Ah, uh,
1: loose lips, eat chips.
2: Yeah, you know they <laughs> yeah. do, buddy. The next morning, Paul Gall met Edwards at a bar and they started drinking. Ah, brecky beers, classy. Classy. Later that night, after drinking all day, they lured Jim out into a rural area on the pretense of ripping off some drug dealers. They then beat and strangled him to death and threw his body over an embankment. Afterwards, Anne called Mary Ellen in Cancun and let her know that Jim was dead. Several weeks later, Jim's badly decomposed body was found by hikers in Ventura County. After investigators rehydrated one of his fingers, they were able to run his prints through the system. They could then identify Jim Bernstein's body as he had a record for passing bad checks and impersonating a police officer. When Ventura County Sheriff searched Jim's place after his murder, they found the warrant that was left there by LAPD after Bob's murder and so they called them. Now, this is how they found out that Jim was a suspect in Bob's murder.
1: Ah, oh, all the pieces are falling into place.
2: They are. The LAPD detectives and Ventura County Sheriff's Department teamed up to investigate.
1: Crossover episode. It's a
2: crossover episode. Hooray! Yay, we love those. The sheriffs found a phone card the LAPD had missed in their search of Jim's place. It had been used to call Mary Ellen and Mike Silver, which connected Jim to Bob's murder. They also went through Jim's address book, questioning everyone in it. The case broke wide open when they questioned Mary Ellen's BFF, Anne, and she cracked under the pressure and told them everything. Well, she knew everything, so she could have told them everything. That's right. Jim's killers, Paul Gole and Daryl Ray Edwards, Paul eventually Goal. made an agreement to testify for the prosecution under plea bargains. Uh, so under the arrangement, both pleaded guilty to second-degree murder and received sentences of 15 years to life in prison. Mary Ellen was offered a plea deal too, but decided to take her chances, firmly believing that she would be able to charm and manipulate a jury.
1: Ooh, was she right?
2: Uh, you'll find out. Her daughter, Nicole, was not charged. Really? Yeah. Pogo. Investigators discovered that Mike Silver, Bob's murderer, had since killed himself after murdering his girlfriend.
1: Oh. I know. Quite the body count in this story?
2: Yeah, there's three. Four now. Mm. Yeah. Mm. It's not nice.
1: It's not nice. It's
2: not meant to be nice.
1: No. They should have been eating chips, those loose lips.
2: Yeah, well, if your loose lips are eating chips, you can't be gobbing on about all your murder plans, can you? Yep,
1: yep, that's right. Poggle.
2: Police and prosecutors nicknamed Mary Ellen the Green Widow because she had her husband killed for money, not because she was heavily into weed or a witch or an ova. More's the pity.
1: Uh, Not Shrek? Wasn't a Shrek-themed wedding? Wasn't a
2: Shrek-themed wedding. I know you love those. (laughs) I
1: do really love those.
2: Mary Ellen smiled and winked at spectators at the trial. (laughs) The defence had a weird strategy of saying that Bob was an alcoholic monster that abused his wife and stepdaughter, but... They also claimed the women had nothing to do with his murder. So it's like they partially used the um, abuse excuse and at the same time they didn't. Well,
1: yeah, that's right. You can't have your cake and eat it. Unless you have two cakes, of course, which is what I do.
2: Yeah, Barney Two Cakes. That's what they call you on the streets around here. They
1: do. That's my gangster name. Yeah, hey,
2: look at who it is. It's Barney Two Cakes. Hey, you want a slice of cake? I got two cakes. The prosecution opened their case by presenting a large mounted copy of the photograph showing Mary Ellen reclining on a hotel bed, nude and smiling, her body covered with 20 grand in $100 bills. Um, they did this to cite greed as the motive for her yes. husband's murder, and well, it was quite effective.
1: I'd say that would be quite compelling for mm-hmm. a <laughs> jury. Yes. Very
2: compelling. On September 16th, 1994, Mary Ellen Samuels was found guilty on two counts each of murder, solicitation, and conspiracy, with special circumstances of multiple murder and killing for financial gain. She was later sentenced to death. To this day, she remains on death row in California, sleeping every night on a cot that is not covered in $100 bills.
1: Oh, well, it's sad for her, I guess. But it's good for the general community.
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Look, who's to say she would have stopped it too? She seems to think that it was pretty casual to just get people that you knew very well bumped off.
1: And Paul Goll, he Paul took Gull? a deal?
2: Well, he was he took that deal and he got so, 15 to life. Yeah, yeah. And he went around the prison introducing himself to his new friends going, Hey, name's Pogo. And they said. Pogo?
1: What's your name? Your name's Pogo? What kind of name is that of you? Fucking clown?
2: (laughs) Shut up, Barney Two Cakes.
1: Uh, You want a slice of my cake? Uh,
2: He's rubbing his nipples as he says that. Sweetheart. Oh, my God. Why? 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 You want a
1: slice of my cake, sweetheart?
2: Why the nipple rub? Why is that necessary right now? you like it. <laughs> no, not it really. Makes
1: the cake sweeter.
2: Oh god, I'm just going to close my eyes for the rest of the podcast. Oh, <laughs> uh,
1: I'm so sorry.
2: Mm, yeah, yeah, I don't believe you. You know, Pogol. Pogol. Yo, fuckhead! What time is it?
1: <laughs> it's true crime nerd time. Hang
2: on, just let me refill my glass with toilet wine. True crime nerd time. True crime nerd
0: time. True. true
1: True Crime Nerd Time is an opportunity for you, our listeners, to give us your recommendations for anything true crime related. It can be a book, movie, TV series, graphic novel, song, or just about anything that has scratched your true crime itch. You can record your voice, just do it on your phone and we'll play it, or write it and we'll read it out. Now, we have one here from Simone Edwards, and she writes, there are two docos I reckon are worthy of true crime nerd time. The first one is the documentary Blackfish. And she writes, this doco made me so mad. It's the type I can't bring myself to watch a game because I was so affected. It's not your traditional crime doco, but what happens in it is definitely a crime. You've seen it, haven't you, Tara?
2: Oh, yeah, I loved it. It's quite menacing. And it's it's, yeah, it isn't your usual standard one because... Well, you'll see.
1: Well, Simone goes on. She says, uh, greedy fuckers putting employees' lives at risk to make a buck. People get hurt, three people die, and the people that can change it don't. I hope these cunts burn in hell. Fierce words, Simone. <laughs> Be warned, there is some animal cruelty involved, as it's about Tilikum, an orca that was held at SeaWorld. Yep, a serial killer whale.
2: Yep. I know, I was really amazed too when I was watching it. And I'm like, oh my God, the killer whale is a serial killer whale. What?
1: Hey, you know what else Simone Edwards likes?
2: Um, Big butts and she cannot laugh.
1: <laughs> I don't know about that. But she does like this um, documentary called Tower.
2: Oh, I haven't seen that one, but I've heard it good things.
1: Well, she writes, Tower is about a shooter on top of the University Clock Tower in Austin, Texas back in 1966. Charles Whitman
2: I know the case
1: Mm. An ex-Marine who indiscriminately shot at people for an hour and a half This asshole killed 16 and injured another 31 And I'm not sure if that total includes his mother and wife that he stabbed to death the night before Tower is put together in a cool way using interviews, archival videos and animation With the bonus of seeing where some of the victims and witnesses are now P.S. The photo of Charles Whitman dead on the observation deck is gruesome. It's not in the doco, but Google won't let you down. All right, got to go and kick some pricks.
2: Later, <laughs> Simone. <laughs> you
1: got kick those pricks, yeah, Simone. Yeah,
2: kick them hard. And thanks
1: for submitting that. Now, if you want to submit a True Crime Nerd Time, just go to our website. That's bloodymurderpodcast.com. Uh, just click on the True Crime Nerd Time button and all the instructions are there.
2: Yeah, yeah, there's a little bit of a criteria there. Um, so check that out, please. All right, Barney, it's time for you to get murdery.
1: Eric Francis Bowles was born on January 7th, 1927. He would go under a few aliases in his long criminal life, but I'm going to stick to Eric to make things simpler, even though Eric is clearly a cat's name. Yep. Eric was born into a stable family life in Carlton, New South Wales, where he attended the local Maris Brothers school. When he was 13 or so, he ran away. For what reason? We know not. What we do know is that Eric got up to all kinds of mischief and rambunctious behaviour. He
2: probably just didn't want to clean his room. Yeah, clean no, your- Mum, I'm not cleaning my room.
1: Clean your room, Eric.
2: No! Sid, I hate you, Mum. I'm running away and you'll never see me again. I don't
1: want to go to school. Yeah? Eric broke into a Rockdale cinema and a house and destroyed stock in a produce store. All oh, my potatoes, you little gobshite! The Irish shopkeeper yelled as Eric ran away laughing. <laughs> But Eric wasn't laughing for long, Tara, as mm-hmm. a local copper grabbed him by his scrawny neck. The children's court then heard seven charges of stealing against him. They gave him a stern talking to and then handed him over to his furious father who led the squealing teen away by his ear.
2: Ah, oh, the good old days.
1: Yeah. Now you can download an app for that.
2: <laughs> it's called a parenting app.
1: Yeah. Did Eric learn his lesson, Tara?
2: Of course he freaking didn't.
1: No, he did not. By early 1941, he was pinched again by the local constabulary, this time for stealing a woman's handbag. But before the charge could be brought against Naughty Eric, he escaped, and after stealing money from his mother's purse, he headed to Newcastle. Yes, there's a Newcastle.
2: Right, he's got a thing for women's purses, doesn't he?
1: Ah, you know, matches his shoes.
2: I guess it does.
1: It was here that he first met up with James Anderson and they jumped a train to Cardwell in Queensland before separating. Eric then drifted around the state committing acts of tomfoolery. Eric would then go under the name Harry Lambert. Now Tara, Eric had a good reason for adopting a new name in Queensland for he had plenty of legal history in New South Wales to conceal. At Gordon Vale, Eric was caught after breaking into a railway station and stealing 15 shillings. He was sentenced to 14 days in jail. Not long afterwards, he broke into a house in Cairns to pinch goods worth about 45 pounds. And at Ravenshoe, he was caught stealing five shillings. It was in court that Eric was noticed by Christian Davo Watkins, a touring magician. (laughs) Alrighty. Davo Must have liked the cut of his jib. He paid his fine and gave him a job as his assistant slash apprentice.
2: Maybe he just thought his legs would look really cool sticking out of that box that you put ladies in to saw them in half.
1: Well, I think he had a very sparkly costume and he went, who's going to fit into this?
2: (laughs) Yeah, right. He had the leotard.
1: Yeah, that 13-year-old boy over there. Yeah. So, yeah, whether he had any form of custody arrangement over 13-year-old Eric is unclear.
2: Oh, well, you know, owning a costume that will fit the kid is like half the battle for custody back then.
1: Now, I saw your ears prick up when I said magician.
2: Oh, everything pricked up when you said magician.
1: Would you like to hear about Christian Davo Watkins, Tara?
2: For the whole rest of the evening, please, Barney.
1: Okay. Davo, the Magnificent seems to have been a journeyman magician in the eastern Queensland area, travelling around and making his living by entertaining children. He was not especially famous, but seems to have been a familiar figure in this region. We assume his name Davo was pronounced Dave-O in the style similar to every Australian, like your Aussie-az kind of thing, of putting an O on an end of a name to indicate a casual, friendly type of person.
2: Davo! Davo! The magician.
1: <laughs> I am Davo the Magnificent.
2: I picture him looking like Cat Weasel, by the way, and I hope I'm right. Well,
1: electricery, the- Uh There are a couple of newspaper reports that refer to him as Davo.
2: Davo. Well, see, that sounds more like a magician's name, doesn't it? The Magnificent Davo.
1: Yeah, it's more exotic. Oh, the
2: Magnificent (laughs) Davo. Watch me saw a lady in half, hey. Got any VB here, eh? You can't.
1: (laughs) Oh, dear. So I couldn't find much information on Davo the Magnificent, unfortunately, Uh Tara. But perhaps these newspaper references I found may paint a picture of him.
2: Okay, go for it, Barney Two cakes.
1: February 1933 in the Telegraph, Brisbane, there is an advert that tells us that Davo was a children's entertainer at Saturday morning parties hosted by Radio 4BH Brisbane on a number of occasions.
2: You know the best parties are always held on a Saturday morning.
1: Yeah, they really are. Uh, January 5th. That's a shitty day, day.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's the shitty day I was born. Yeah. Fuck all. <laughs>
1: 1934, again in the Telegraph, <laughs> Brisbane.
2: Oh, no, I was, I was a few years old by then.
1: Uh, Davo advertised for a young offsider. And the ad reads Opportunity, learn congenial profession. Magician Davo touring state, has vacancy for a lad, 16. Call 71 Wharf Street.
2: Why did he want a boy? Don't they more traditionally work? Well, maybe this is good. Maybe he was ahead of his time. And he was like, I don't want a lady in, in tights and a little sparkling costume. I want a, I want a little boy in that.
1: Well, you also wanted to teach an apprentice. And, um,
2: well, yeah, I've got to pass the magic on to another guy with a pants wand, don't you? I don't
1: know. It's, a, it's a sort of a glass ceiling there for lady magicians. Yeah, though. you've
2: got to have a pants wand or you don't get to learn their magic secrets. That's right. Mm-hmm.
1: December 1937, Davo was seeking 200 pounds damages after being hit by a car. Davo claimed he was unable to perform one of his important escape tricks, the bag escape. <laughs> sure. Now let me explain this trick to you. Uh-huh. They put him in a bag and he escapes.
2: Whoa.
1: He also had an injury to his index finger of his left hand that hampered him in sleight of hand.
2: Well, yeah, I mean it's not so slight if your hands lagging, is it?
1: That's right. He was awarded sixty-four pounds. The report called him a conjurer and professional entertainer. Part time podcaster. <laughs> He would be involved in another court dispute at Nambour in 1939, in which two vehicles collided and Davo was found to be at fault.
2: Well, not so magic when he's driving, is he?
1: Well, that's right. Uh, Another report here, February 1939, the Courier reports, his sleight of hand amazed his youthful audience at Right,
2: So he performs mostly for children is what I'm getting. So his,
1: his finger healed up all right.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, the $64, the £64 fixed it. That's right. He got he got a whole new hand. <laughs> it's made of wood.
1: Oh, wooden hands were oh, very popular at the time.
2: Yeah, yeah, very good for sleight of hand. You can just take them off.
1: That's right. June 1939, Tambourine, Queensland. The children of the local state school were given an enjoyable and interesting entertainment at the school on Monday by Devo the Magician, who visits the school periodically under permit from the Department of Education.
2: Oh, he's a learning magician.
1: Yeah. Hey, what's going on here? You're not trying to teach me shit, are you?
2: Damn straight, I'm going to teach you stuff. I'm Davo the Magnificent.
1: Hey, uh, Tara, did you know that you cannot have a pet rabbit in Queensland?
2: Well, unless there's a couple of different, you know, ways to get around there that. There are exceptions mm-hmm. because of the
1: rabbit problem in Queensland. Oh, yeah. So and the, what are the exceptions? You should see it at
2: Easter. It's terrifying. Um, well, one is you're allowed to have a rabbit if you're going to medically experiment on it because that's good. Um, and also, if you're a magician, you can have one.
1: That's right. But you have to be a registered magician. Yeah, yeah.
2: Not just like, you know, like just like a home magician. You have to be like you've got to have your permits and your paperwork in order to get a rabbit.
1: Well, yeah, and to get into the Magician's Guild, you have to jump through some hoops, so to speak.
2: Well, hoops of fire, invisible fire and (laughs) invisible hoops. And also, I think generally you have to be a dude, or at least back then you'd probably do.
1: So how was that, Tara? Do you now get Devo the Magnificent?
2: Well, somewhat. I mean, I would like just to hear even more about him. Like, what did he like eating? And what kind of shoes did he wear? Were they pointy on the toes and did they have bells on them? And did he have, like, a hat that had, like, moons and stars and stuff on it? Well, he had a
1: black top hat, obviously, and a purple cape with stars on it. And he owned a rabbit. And I know he liked to cook sausages, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Okay, sorry. All right? On the day of Saturday, August 9th, 1941, the ball-bustingly magnificent (laughs) Davo was advertised to be performing in conjunction with the Boris Karloff movie, The Ape, love that film, at the Townsville Roxy Theatre.
2: Yeah, you probably relate to it pretty pretty well, don't you? What
1: does that mean?
2: Yeah, a bit of a knuckle-dragger. I, I a like bit, bananas. Bit of, bit of a hairy fucker. You, you like bananas. It's
1: a correlation, you know. You you're
2: like swinging from trees, I branch like, to branch.
1: I like swinging. I, do, I, I don't swing. I like climbing trees and I like bananas. That doesn't mean I'm an, uh, I'm an ape. Mm. On the following Monday, he was seen travelling in a sedan car accompanied by a youth. Whom he employed. That would be Eric. Yep. Just a few days later, on August 12th, the body of Devo was discovered by children lying off the road at Cape Palarenda.
2: Oh, I wonder if they thought it was part of a magic trick.
1: Hmm. He was covered with an overcoat and his head had been caved in with multiple gashes to the skull. Some newspapers reported that his head had been hacked to bits.
2: Ugh. Aw, oh, Devo.
1: Within days... Police apprehended two males sleeping in Davo's car, James Anderson and a young man who identified himself as Harry Lambert.
0: Ah,
2: and Eric by any other name will still be a horrible scoundrel.
1: That's right. A bloodstained hatchet was found in the car. So you're right, uh, Tara, Lambert is, of course, Eric.
2: Mm
0: -hmm.
1: He initially said that his mother died when he was young. He denied any knowledge of the murder, said he had not been near Palarenda and claimed that he was driving the car up to Cardwell where he was to meet with his employer, the most sensuous Dave. But, and it's a big but.
2: Well, I mean, we like those.
1: As soon as Eric was advised that a witness had seen him driving at speed at Palarenda, Eric caved in and said, I did it. I will have to pay for it.
2: Oh, wow. He crumbled like Kevin Spacey's career, didn't he? Yeah,
1: like a Kmart deck chair.
2: Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. That you sat in.
1: (laughs) Yeah that's right and you just pointed and laughed and I was stuck
2: You <laughs> couldn't get out. Yeah, at least I didn't run for a, for my camera. Or my Don't phone. buy folding
1: chairs from Kmart. they're not very good. No,
2: unless you like to be stuck with like just just from your knees and, and then your arms just like waggling and you can't get out anymore.
1: I, I was I was a turtle on its back <laughs> and you laughed.
2: That was one of the best days of my life.
1: Statements made by both Eric and Anderson contradict each other, but both would later make accusations against Davo the Marvelous to the effect that he had intended to molest Eric. On August 14, police charged 14-year-old Eric with murder. Presented to the Townsville magistrate in early September, Eric said that he had joined up with Davo the Groovy a month previously and they had had a number of arguments with Davo saying, according to Eric that he had a paper giving him control of Eric until he was 21. We don't know if that's true.
2: No, it's just if the costume fits.
1: Yeah, that's right, the sparkly one.
2: Yeah, until you grow out of this, you're mine.
1: (laughs) Until you grow out of this, you're mine. (laughs)
2: That's how it works. And it's really stretchy, so, you know, he could be, unless he, like, you know, works out a lot or, or eats a lot, he could be wearing that in his 30s.
1: Eric stated that while they were camped at Palarenda, Davo the Wondrous was about to cook some sausages in a frying pan when Eric hit him with a tomahawk several times. He really should have let him cook the sausages first, I well, think.
2: yeah, you'd think.
1: Well, then Eric dragged the body some distance away and then, finding that his heart was still beating, hit him again. Though Eric claimed Davo had wanted to have sex with him, when Senior Sergeant Voigt asked if he had ever made an improper suggestion to him, Eric said no.
2: Oh, hang on a second. So, so Eric is saying that Davo's never laid a hand on him or, or yeah. tried to hit on him or anything he, at he, all. His
1: statements contradict each other.
2: Yeah, yeah, but, I mean, if they change later, it's to save your ass usually. The initial stuff is, well, often got more truth in it.
1: Mm, we'll true. see. I don't know. Tell well, me that's more. right. Was it just that Davo the Incredible was just flashing bedroom eyes at young Eric?
2: Well, um, or maybe he wasn't doing anything. I mean, it's hard to say, unless you got some evidence for me.
1: Hmm. Eric also admitted to taking a purse with a few pounds in it and a watch and a notebook outlining Devo's secret magic tricks. Well,
2: maybe that was the real motivation. Yeah. Steal his magic.
1: Evidence was given that Anderson believed Davo was a sexual pervert and had formed that opinion from information given to him by the friend of a boy who had once worked for Davo. The suggestion was that Anderson tried to convince Eric that he was a prisoner and should break free and travel north with him.
2: This actually sounds to me like Anderson's trying to groom Eric.
1: Yeah, it does, doesn't it? The magistrate stated outright that Anderson was a mischief maker, accusing him of encouraging the murder, but Anderson hotly denied that he was trying to cause trouble. An inspector of fisheries, William Hitting, gave evidence that he met Davo the Awesome and Eric just a week before the murder and that Davo had made a remark about leaving all his belongings worth about five hundred pounds, that's a substantial yeah. amount of money in in those days, to Eric in his will if he proved to be a decent and reliable apprentice. Davo, he said, was a most respectable old fellow. Yeah. The magistrate at the hearing said that he was more than satisfied that Anderson had set Eric against his employer and made him unhappy. Eric would write to his mother in October 1941 relating his history to date and writing, I killed him and took his money and his car, so it's no use you worrying about me and spending your money and coming up here because if you come up, I will do my best to get sent to prison as I'm not sorry for anything that I've done. Oh. Teenagers, eh? Yeah, I know. Mm. He also boasted to his mother that he'd spent £10 in three days on beer and tobacco after murdering Davo.
2: Oh, his mother must have been so proud of him.
1: Mm. Speaking from the box, Eric (laughs)
2: double... That's a good name for a podcast, but it'd have to be hosted by ladies. That's the name of
1: my fourth album. (laughs) (laughs) I think I might have missed a word there. Speaking from the witness box...
2: (laughs) That's more like it.
1: Eric doubled down and said that David had made improper suggestions to him and following an attack... He had struck Davo on the noggin with an axe.
2: Hang on, so now he's saying that Davo did attack him? That's right. That's a convenient turn of events or, well, changey-up of his story, isn't it?
1: Slippery Anderson, in the meantime, was released without charge. Justice R.J. Douglas of the Supreme Court received a verdict of guilty of manslaughter from the jury. He told Eric in a most stern voice, mm-hmm. <laughs> In its verdict, the jury has evidently considered that there was some provocation. You have had a good education, are an intelligent boy, and have a good father and mother. You got into bad company and started petty thieving.
2: I like that he's had a good education by the age of 13. Nevertheless,
1: it is quite possible and quite likely that you can yet become a good citizen, but you must be shown that you have to obey the laws. He sentenced Eric to be detained until he reached the age of 18. So he only got four years.
2: Yeah, that's not a lot. Lucky he's so damn well educated, though. (laughs) It's really, yeah, he's done so much book learning.
1: Yeah, I mean, he had up to 12 at school.
2: (laughs) Hey, he's probably a doctor.
1: The judge asked Eric if after the account he had given of his life, did he still consider he was an inexperienced boy?
2: That's a weird question.
1: Eric replied, yes. It is an odd question, isn't it? Oh yeah. I found that in the in a newspaper article about the court case, but yeah.
2: That sounds like a grooming question.
1: It really did. Davo the thwarted sausage friars. Uh, his estate was sold at auction in Townsville on February the thirteenth, nineteen forty two, including conjurers apparatus, camp bedding, fishing gear, several of those really long multicoloured handkerchiefs <laughs> that you pull out of your mouth, one white one white rabbit. One top hat and one of those boxes to saw a woman in half.
2: Oh, yeah, you have to have one of those.
1: And, of course, the sparkly costume. Yeah, yeah. In 1944, Eric was released back into society and went under the name Terence Patrick O'Connor. But we're still going to call him Eric. Yeah. Eric, not wasting any time, started to steal from shops and houses. He then headed back to New South Wales to break some laws there, too. In July 1945, Eric broke into a home in Newcastle and stole a rifle and other articles. In February 1946, he stole £10 by fraudulently cashing in another man's pay docket. You just don't do that.
2: No, that's not cool, man.
1: Not cool, Eric. In July 1946, he and some accomplices pinched two cars, one at Casino and another at Maroombala.
2: Maroomba. Maroomba.
1: And another at -um Maroomba along with more than 100 other items of property, which I'm going to list right now. (laughs) (laughs) No, I won't. Eric was also remanded to Newcastle on a separate charge of stealing goods to the value of £170. So he's prolific, isn't he?
2: Yeah, yeah. He uh, can't keep his sticky fingers in his pockets, can he? Oh,
1: he's got sticky fingers. Mm -hmm. Mm Yep. On the car theft charges, Eric was sentenced to two and a half years jail. He made the telling statement by his theft that he had gained £100, which he'd spent within a week, probably on beer and tobacco.
2: Oh, you know, sex workers and cocaine.
1: That's right, and then he wasted the Uh, rest.
2: Some (laughs) some gambling, maybe.
1: Oh, and then he wasted the rest. Yeah. And argued that the ordinary, honest working man would work three years to earn the same amount. He said that if he was given three years for the offence, he would be no further behind than the honest man who had worked for three years.
2: Oh, he's (sighs) just a bit of a dipshit, isn't he? A little
0: upstart.
1: Nice one, Eric. In March 1951, Eric was reprimanded on £100 bail on a charge of breaking and entering and stealing a wedding ring and other items from a house in Newcastle. He, he likes to steal shit in Newcastle.
2: Oh, well, don't we
1: all? Hmm. Set to sing him to three years' imprisonment, the magistrate said, You have a shocking record. Ugh. If you come before me again, I will declare you an habitual criminal. Nice one, Judge.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, he's already one, right? <laughs>
1: The Sydney CIB already had him listed as an active and incorrigible criminal, arsonist, car and bicycle thief, house and shopbreaker, and murderer. So, yeah, he's on some listicles already. Yes, yes, he has quite the yeah, resume. He has quite the resume. In 1952, Eric was discovered breaking into a house in Newcastle.
2: Ah, oh, well, of course. Um,
1: actually, the suburb of Hamilton, which is in Newcastle, attacking the male of the house and bashing the man's wife with a tie lever. This landed him six years in Maitland Jail. In 1959, upon his release, he met up with a knucklehead named Jack Russell, and the plan for another armed robbery was born. All they needed was a gun.
2: Oh, I know that's the last thing these knuckleheads need.
1: And where would they get this gun? Well, I will tell you. <laughs> On April 23, 1960, George Shelley and Leslie Hepworth headed down Turton Road in Eastville near Maitland to see Sidney Shelley and have a drink with him, as they always did on a Saturday. Thirty-four-year-old Sidney was George's brother and Leslie's brother-in-law. He lived in an isolated cement cottage with his wife, 21-year-old Elva Elaine Shelley and their eight-month-old daughter, Louise Joan. When they knocked on the door of the house, there was no answer. Then Leslie noticed blood on the front doorstep. By the way, Leslie's a bloke. Yeah, I figured. Hmm. Using a 44-gallon drum to stand on, George peered through the front window. The body of Sidney Shelley was lying in the hallway covered in blood. His head was missing. The two men ran the full mile to Sidney's mother's house at the edge of Eastville. Mrs Shelley then immediately called the police. When detectives arrived at the house, they tried to keep Mrs Shelley out, but she heard the baby crying and raced in. Little Louise Joan was found in the crib close to suffocation, covered by blankets and a suitcase. Mrs Shelley took the baby to Maitland Hospital, where she had to identify the two headless bodies. Her daughter-in-law had been found in the bedroom, partially covered by a blanket, one arm hanging over the side of the bed and a pool of blood where her head should have been. It appeared that Sydney had been decapitated on the front doorstep while Elva was beheaded in the bedroom. There was no apparent motive and no obvious cause of death, i.e. gunshot wounds, strangulation, etc. Mm-hmm. The coroner confirmed that the heads had been removed post-mortem and that Elva Shelley had been 16 weeks pregnant. Sydney Shelley had been Elva Dixon's first love and the young couple had married in 1959. Sydney had spent most of his life working in the bush, beginning at 17, where he worked in Tamworth sewing wheat bags, along with some rabbit catching, sugar cane cutting, and at the time of his murder, he worked as a brickies labourer at East Maitland Primary School. Now, I couldn't find much about Elva. Okay. But from what I, I could find is she was, um, she was a teetotaler. She didn't drink. She didn't really go out much. Uh, she fell in love when she was 16, so uh-huh. first boyfriend, and she loved being a mother. She was a young mother and she was happy.
2: Right, okay.
1: Uh, it's just really sad.
2: Ah, oh, and so gruesome as well.
1: Yeah. Well, the investigating officer, Ted Cahill, would later describe the murders as the most bloodthirsty, cold, calculated, premeditated murder I have ever known. He's not wrong. Initially, the police struggled to find leads. The severed heads were missing, no weapons were found, and no apparent motive was known. But by a number of lucky chances it was not long before things started to fall into play, Stara. Uh huh. Through Sydney's extended family, it became known that Sidney Shelley had owned a gun and it was discovered that he had lent it to a friend, a man by the name of Jack Vile Russell. From Russell, the investigators learned that a number of practice shots had been fired into a wooden post at Sydney's home, at the time Russell borrowed the gun, and those slugs were retrieved by the police. But the case really exploded on Saturday, April 30th, 1960. Stanley Ramsden went to his usual fishing spot at Silo Wharf in Newcastle. Upon his arrival, he saw the SS Helenus tied up where he usually cast his line, and preparations were underway for the vessel to take off. While Stanley waited for the water to settle as the boat left, he noticed several pieces of debris arise due to the force of the churning propellers. At first, he thought one of the objects was a cabbage. Oh. But to his horror, and disappointment because he wanted a cabbage, um, he realised it was a human head, floating face up, eyes open. Creepy. He called the police immediately and the head was taken to the morgue, where it was identified as belonging to Elvis Shelley. Two bullets were removed from the skull and matched the bullets from the post that had been fired from the missing gun. After conducting extensive interviews with the locals, police ascertained that a man known as Terence Patrick O'Connor, that's Eric's new alias, had wanted to borrow Sidney Shelley's gun to do a job. Eric had learned about the gun from Jack Vile Russell.
2: So his middle name is Vile, like appallingly awful, Vile? Yeah. Wow, that's, that's I haven't heard that one before. Yeah,
1: it's normally a first name.
2: Yeah, yeah in this country we call him Vilo.
1: Russell had been in and out of jail several times for petty crimes such as cattle stealing, oh, a duffer, mm-hmm. larceny, and on the high scale, assault and robbery. He had known Eric for 20 years, so him and Eric, they're old mates.
2: Yeah, wow, okay. Um, that's not a good sign.
1: On April 18th, 1960, Sidney Shelley handed the gun over to Jack Vile Russell, who then passed it on to
2: Eric. Eric.
1: Although there didn't appear to be a motive, other than robbery, there was only a mere six pounds. Oh,
2: Um, come on.
1: 32-year-old Eric was formally charged with the Shelley murders. Russell was also a suspect, but he denied any involvement despite Eric trying to pin the murders on him. Russell and Eric were interviewed separately in an attempt to find discrepancies in their stories. Each would give versions of the murders which served to confuse the case. Eric claimed he tossed the gun into the harbour off Nobby's head though no gum was found. Nobby's head.
2: <laughs> nice one, two cakes.
1: Ultimately, the pair were set against each other and made counterclaims of the other's guilt. Eric gave a story that Elvis Shelley's unborn baby was in fact the child of Jack Vile Russell and that Russell had killed her to avoid being found out.
2: Oh, way to, like, cast aspersions on the dead.
1: Well, yeah, it's 1962. There's no way they can prove or disprove that. Yeah, with no DNA being around in those days. Well, there was DNA, but they didn't know they didn't know what it was.
2: Let dig, me... dig up, stupid!
1: <laughs> All right. The gun, the blade, and Sidney Shelley's head were never recovered, and the true motive for the murders was not learned. But with forensic comparison of the bullets recovered from Elva's head and the wooden post, ultimately a case was built sufficiently enough to charge Eric with the murder. After a four-day trial which began on August twenty-second, 1960, Louise Jones Shelley was taken from her family. Despite both sets of parents wanting her and put up for adoption, her whereabouts are unknown, as is the head of her father, Sidney Shelley. Probably got churned up by those propellers. Destroyed, probably, I'd say.
2: Yeah, I don't know. There's E-eaten, a skull in there.
1: Eaten by sharks.
2: And crocodiles.
1: Yeah. Author Bill Tuckey was the first journalist to be allowed into that lonely cement house all those years ago, um, only 24 hours after the bodies were discovered. His story of the case and his recounting of some of the questions that arise are documented in his book, The Maitland Double Headless Murders The Untold Story. In the book, the author poses some questions about parts of the investigation which were poorly carried out and not properly examined. He raises a real possibility that both Russell and Eric may have acted together. However, as events turned out, Jack Russell escaped trial and had a dog named after him.
2: Which is hardly a punishment, is it?
1: No. Would you like to see my vile Jack Russell?
2: Oh, <laughs> bet they're nicer than he was.
1: Oh, that's right. Bill Tucky sums up the life of Eric Bowles as a cruel, chronic liar, contemptuous of human life, compulsive thief and a cynical manipulator of women and a murderer who didn't belong in decent society.
2: Well, yeah, he's not wrong.
1: Hmm. But he did look good in that sparkly costume.
2: Well, I mean, I guess that's what they were going for. Yeah. Do you think he tucked?
1: Oh, I don't know. Hmm. That's a question.
2: Uh, It's not a good one.
1: That's not a good one. Hey, did you know that that was a suggestion from one of our patrons? I did. It was from Tara Rara.
2: There can be only one Tara. It's like Highlander. No,
1: there can be other Taras. Uh, She writes, actually, in an email. She said, funny enough, in the late 90s, I was a teenager hanging out at a mate's place in East Maitland when media showed up asking her parents all sorts of weird questions and if the house was haunted. This is a house that she's currently in. Mm -hmm. And and it absolutely freaked the fuck out of everyone we discovered. We were in the headless house of Turton Road.
2: Oh, wow.
1: Uh, So there.
2: Right. She she
1: spent a night in a haunted house. Well, I mean,
2: assuming that it was haunted. May not have been haunted. But it might have been.
1: Well, they never did find Sydney Shelley's head, so his headless corpse would probably wander Around
2: just trying to find his find his own hair. Nah.
1: That's that's how ghost stories go, I think. Probably. Yeah.
2: How about some listener feedback?
1: Yeah, let's do that.
2: Haley Runyon shared a post that said, Best quote rape is about violence, not sex. If a person hits you with a spade, you wouldn't call it gardening.
1: I love that quote.
2: Yeah, it's spot on.
1: Yeah. Johnny M. Venezia posted something we agree with. I'm not mad you called me an asshole. I'm sad that you lack the creativity to call me anything else, you knuckle-dragging inbred swamp twat.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, use your imagination. That's why I don't use the word bitch. I find it just too unimaginative.
1: Yeah, it's not a great word, ah, too.
2: Come on, I'm, it's overused.
1: I'm even fine with my kids swearing. I just don't like them using that word. I just, yeah.
2: Yeah, but come up with something new. Twat waffle? Samuel Devatek taught us an important new word. It's anti-stalking. Now, that's a verb that means learning a person's routine in order to avoid them, (laughs) which is exactly what I used to do um, with some shifts at work. I'd be like, oh, that horrendous person who I hate supervising always works Saturdays and never Sundays. Well, I know what I'm doing.
1: Well, we've both got certain streets that we really don't drive down. Oh,
2: (laughs) we call it the Goblin Hot Zone. yeah. Yeah,
1: that's right. Sarah Smith and Compton posted, Help, I think I've accidentally committed a federal crime. There I was, overtired and overworked, stood in front of a post box with a letter and a dog leash in one hand and a full poo bag in the other. Guess which one I posted. Now what? (laughs) Do I call the post office and confess? Stand about at pick-up time and explain to the poor poster who empties a bin or just hope that they never link it to me and move on with my life? Needless to say, I did not bung the letter in after it. I'm trying to take comfort in the fact that it'll surely be frozen by 5pm pickup time.
2: Oh, well, lucky she didn't do it in Australia.
1: No. It'd
0: be
2: reeking down the street. It'd be like cooked, no. boiled dog poo.
1: Oh, it'd be terrible. Well, Sarah, uh, Smith and Compton, your secret is safe with us. Yeah,
2: clearly. We won't tell anybody. No.
1: Hey, Tara, I have a question for you.
2: Mm, I'm not taking questions at the moment. What is Aussie as? Aussie as are tales of criminal stupidity with a quintessentially Australian flavour. Do you want me to write it down for you?
1: I would like to hear one, please.
2: Okay. Today I'm going to be talking about an Aussie truck driver's encounter with a Yowie, which is an Australian folklore entity reputed to live in the bush or the outback. They're pretty much our version of Bigfoot and they tend to steer clear of big cities. And Cameras. The 53-year-old truckie, who wants to be identified only as Gary, Gazza, has described a terrifying encounter with a three-metre-tall Yowie while driving in a bushy part of the Gold Coast hinterland in November last year. Gazza has described how he had to slam on the brakes when the giant hairy creature emerged from the bush onto the road in front of him in broad daylight. He says the Yowie thumped on the bonnet of his truck angrily before disappearing into the forest. Gazza told the press he's been plagued by nightmares ever since, saying, It was the worst thing that's ever happened to me, eh? Oh, I tried to push it in the back of my head and think, That was freaky. It just can't be real. Oh, I just couldn't get it out of my mind. I was having trouble sleeping at night. He said that before this encounter, he didn't think Yowies were real and was worried about how people would react to his story. Fortunately for him, his wife, Mrs Gazza, believed him. In a rather unfortunate coincidence, the dash cam on Gaza's truck was being serviced on the very day of the Yowie sighting and so he didn't get to record the incident.
3: Mm, how convenient.
2: Mm, for the Yowie, Gaza said... Ah, oh, the whole thing lasted for five seconds and you're staring this monster in the face, watching it, making sure it isn't going to step round at you and you're scared for your life, not grabbing for a fucking camera. Gazza has only driven the road he saw the Yowie on once since his close encounter of the furry kind and says he doesn't believe he'll ever see the Yowie again. Ah, oh, you know, I figure it's a one in a million thing. Lightning doesn't strike twice. On the other hand... I'd like to see it with a camera, you know, just to prove it. We would all like that to happen too, Gazza.
1: Yeah, we would, Gaza.
2: or it didn't happen, Yowie boy.
1: Mm, that's a good one.
2: Well, yeah, and I'm going to Queensland. All the Yowies are going to come attack me for it. Come at me, Yowies!
1: Thank you for letting us invade your ear holes. Do we? Your the delicate ear nubs. And thanks to our patrons. If you'd like to support us, visit our website. If you just want to buy us a drink because we're really thirsty, mm-hmm. there's a PayPal donate button there too. I've been Barney Black.
2: And I've been Tara Saravan. And
1: this is Bloody Murder.
2: Please don't forget to review us on iTunes.
1: And, of course, rate and subscribe. It really helps us.
2: You can follow us on Twitter at Bloody Murder Pod. Uh, Join our Facebook group or um, check out our Facebook page. Um, We're also on Snapchat and Insta. Our Insta is bloody underscore murder underscore podcast.
1: And, of course, check out our website. I've I've done a lot of work on it lately. Uh, Bloodymurderpodcast.com for news, galleries, more episodes and merchandise.
2: Thanks for listening and we'll be back soon.
1: Goodbye and adios.
2: And keep kicking against the pricks. So we've been encouraging people to vote for us in the Australian Podcast Awards. Voting will be finished by the time anyone hears this episode. Um, but I wrote this thing in our Facebook group saying, you know, those of you who haven't voted, we've used technology to make it so you can no longer hear the podcast. All you'll hear instead is me singing Peter Allen's songs off-key while Barney makes farting noises for an hour. And the response, well, it was it was... Quite a landslide. I believe people want us to go in this direction. They were all like, well, I mean, I wish I hadn't voted now because I'd really like to hear that. Or they're like, look, I already voted, but can you tell me where I can hear that?
0: They had had the intercom on in the room and they kept lying that it wasn't on and they were using sonic pressure
2: on my head since 1997. And I was just like, oh, damn, Barney, do we give the people what they want or do we not? Yeah, sure. Yeah, so we'll be...
1: Go on. (laughs) Get (laughs) cracking.
2: Well, at the end of the outtakes, we're going to give you what you want, so stay tuned. We don't want to do it before then because we'll probably lose listeners over it. Oh, yeah. Barney's cat is a little Terminator. He just he inflicts pain and he laughs about it. Yeah, a little he, kitten laugh. He's
1: a, he's a furry bullet. He runs around just fucking shit up, knocking stuff over. If there's, if there's a table, he's going to knock everything off it with his paw. He's just going to push him off.
2: Yeah, he knocked my just water my glass of water over onto a power board earlier.
1: Yeah, story comes first, like Law and Order. We're we're story driven. We're not, we're <laughs> Just not a, like Law & Order Yeah, we're not a personality podcast Well, I'm talking Law & Order original flavour That was oh. story-driven You could change the cast at any time
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, but Not you SVU know. though No, not SVU And also,
2: we've been called a personality podcast Well, they're wrong By network executives We're not,
1: we're story-driven
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, personality, what even is that?
1: I don't even have one I
2: don't fucking have one
1: I, don't e- I can't even spell it
2: <laughs> No, actually, you probably can't
1: I think it's got a, a P in it, an E, maybe a Z. I fucking wouldn't know because I don't have any personality.
2: Nah, none at all. Monotone none. Barney, that's none. what they call you. Yeah, yeah. they call me um, Beige Tara.
1: Yeah, <laughs> really? Yeah. It's do. not about my
2: skin colour because I'm way whiter than that.
1: Hey, this guy over here though, let me just get him on the mic.
2: Hey, baby, oh. I got personality. <laughs> oh, sexy Barney, he's got personality up there. Yin-yang. Yeah, that's right. And, um, you know, Russian Tara, I hear she's got some kind of disapproving personality, oh, really. Oh, she's quite stern. I do not have problem with personality. I have personality enough. After all, she worked hard at being slim and beautiful and enticingly dressed.
1: Much like ourselves, Tara
2: Well, yeah, people often, when they want to get into podcasting They're like, what's the one thing you need to do? And I'm like, well, clearly you need to work hard at being slim and beautiful and enticingly dressed Damn straight Yep, (laughs) that's how you do it The rest will just come Well,
1: Cambo does, I know Yeah, those
2: purple fisherman's pants
1: I know, I could almost see through them if I imagined Don't they draw attention to his dong? Well, yeah, I'm just looking straight at his junk
2: I know, and then he's all like, my eyes are up here, Barney My eyes are up
1: here, Barney (laughs) (laughs) Stop looking at me junk, bunny.
3: Well,
2: that's because you're trying to figure out if he's got a a, a little Cambo rager on. (laughs) (laughs) Finally got the mics all to myself and I can have that dream show that I always wanted where it's just me talking to myself.
1: Why why are my ears red?
2: (laughs) I didn't actually say anything about you. I just said how I now have my dream show where I talk to myself.
1: Why are my ears red and why does my bum hurt?
2: Well, I've got to tell you, the two things are connected.
1: Your bowls look like Kodak, and you'll bring a snogget.
2: Your parrot voice sounds like Adrian Edmondson.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> so enticingly dressed. I'm, I
1: feel like I should take this full wedding dress off.
2: <laughs> I thought you were dressed as a slutty mechanic.
1: Well, I was before, but oh, okay. I had a quick costume change.
2: <laughs> You're the Diana Ross of podcasting. Well, I am, that's true. <laughs> funny. Two cakes is going to tell you <laughs> 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 Paul pogo Paul pogol
1: Paul, Paul, Gull? Paul, Gull. Paul Gull. Eric Francis bulbs. was
2: Eric what? Francis's balls were what?
1: Eric F- Frankie Balls.
2: Paul <laughs> 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 Goal's was balls. Re- was
1: really Paul Goal. Paul Goal's balls.
2: <laughs> Maybe it's because we're eating his, his farts in the podcast awards. Too many
1: farts. I can't just keep eating your farts. Yeah, I'm just, he's I'm way so ahead full. of us. I'm so full.
2: Stop farting know. in my mouth, they, Cambo. They were, were tastier first. Every vote
1: is a fart in our face.
2: <laughs> Every vote that Cambo has that we don't is a fart in our mouths.
1: It really is. <laughs> They're a little bit tasty, though.
2: I reckon you're still into them.
1: Eric Francis Bowles was. Bowles. Ball- <laughs> Bowles. It's bowls, isn't it? Bowles. Did Eric learn his lesson? <laughs> Paul Goal. Paul Goal. It was here that he met.
2: Paul was-
1: <laughs> He did not meet with Paul Goal.
2: Dean Groover.
3: <laughs> Dean Groover. Hey, <laughs> hey, baby, I'm Dean Groover. <laughs> and I'm going to. Lay down some beats for you.
2: Yeah. I'm going to buy you some drinks, we'll have some cocaine, and then we can have a really good talk to yeah. each other about some really deep and meaningful things. Hey, did I mention my name's Dean Groover? Come on, Mary Ellen, let's hit the road, yeah. All right. Break it down. <laughs> I'm Dean <Gene> Groover. <laughs> <laughs> the name's Dean Groover. I like coke. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I wanna see a show where Dean Groover and Super Grover join Forces or Forces even Voices. (laughs) Fuck, talking you think it's easy, but it isn't. Dean Groover's back. (laughs) Hey baby.
3: Can I buy a drink? My name's Dean Groover.
2: (laughs) He'd be chewing his face the whole time too. That's right. Well yeah, every time I go to Queensland, I adopt a new name.
1: Really? Paul Gold.
2: Yeah, well, sometimes I'm Dean Groover. Dean Groover. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a pretty fun time I have when I'm Dean Groover, but I'm going tomorrow to visit my mum and I reckon I'll be Paul Goll.
1: Not Tits McGee or... Tits,
2: uh, Stephanie figure. <laughs> what? Jonathan Frozen Butt Jones.
1: It's about time somebody shone a light on Tara.
2: <laughs> no, no, I don't really want that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm quite happy here in the dark, thank you very much. Yes. I don't know if the if, if the the comically undersized fez fits. Slippery Andersons a good name.
1: It's the name of my fourth album.
2: No, you can't have so many fourth albums. It just doesn't it doesn't make any sense. Mm.
1: An evening with Dean Groover.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you want a drink, love?
3: Oh, just an evening? How about two weeks straight? No hey, sleep.
2: Hey, no sleep necessary. I'm Dean Groover.
3: <laughs>
2: Come here, Groover. I want you to take a picture of me wearing nothing but money. Ding Groover's too busy dancing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, now he's like Duffman.
1: <laughs> to charge Eric with murder. I'll take out that pause.
2: Oh, I-, I think you should make it longer.
1: <laughs> Dean Groover. Dean Groover doesn't believe in pauses. <laughs> So
3: I can't stop now.
2: I know. I can tell.
1: Bill Tucky's Some well, Bill Tucky. Bill Tucky. Hmm. That's like Mark Tucky.
2: I was thinking that.
1: <sighs> oh, sorry. Am I boring you? Yeah. I've got one paragraph to go, and you're just falling asleep.
2: I'm not falling asleep. I'm just yawning. There's a difference.
1: Oh, you're bored. You're not tired.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you nailed it, Dean uh, <gasps> Paul, p- p- Gold. Paul Gold.
1: Pogo. Pogo
2: you want to bring me in with some fart noises? When my baby, when my baby smiles at me, I go to Rio. never I'm a salsa fellow. When my baby smiles at me, the farts, they lighten up my life. And I am free at last. What a blast
1: Pretty much the worst thing I've ever heard That's
2: pretty much the worst thing I've ever done (laughs) I can sing really badly Just usually And I was leaning into singing as terribly as I could So... Just just know that at least, like, 40, 50 people asked for that. So you've got them to blame. Join our Facebook group, hunt them down individually and give them a piece of your mind. <laughs> <laughs> I think we
1: deserve a drink after that.
2: I think we deserve three or five. All right. <laughs> just relax at home. No, I no, no. no, no, no. so so, It was very good. <laughs> just relax at home. Good, like when Vladimir play with dirty pillows. I enjoy very much.
3: It was very good. Just relax at home. Oh, I love bye-bye. 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 hey baby, bye-bye. hey baby, it's It was very good. Just relax at
2: home. I do not have problem with personality. Problem, I have personality enough. It's about dead man and then woman lose head. It was very good. Just relax at home. I always want physical copy myself. It was very good. Just relax at home. The police, they try to know what happened before more women lose head. It's very exciting. It was, very good. Just relax at home. it was very good. Just relax at
3: home. Oh, Dean I love Mom,
2: Physical better for It was very good. Just relax at home.
3: An evening, Dean Ruber. Oh, just an evening. How about two weeks straight? No sleep, no sleep. It
2: was very good. Just relax at
3: home. No sleep.
2: Wait a minute. What is this you hear? Feels very good. Just relax
3: at home. Leaving Dean Gooba. Oh, just an evening. How about two weeks straight?
2: Feels very good. Just relax at home.
3: Evening, Dean
2: Not much (laughs) breeding. No breed. just an evening. How about two weeks straight? Wait a minute. What is this you
3: do? Evening Dean Gruber. Oh, just an evening. How about two weeks straight? How about two weeks straight? Hey, baby!
2: Gonna buy a My name's Dean Ruba! It was very good. Just relax at home. Not much drink. No, not much fun. Buy,
3: Why not? Wait a minute. What is this you can Dean Oh, just How about two weeks straight? It was
2: very good. Just relax at home. <laughs>
3: How
0: about two weeks straight? It was very good. Just
2: relax at home. Wait a minute. What is this you hear?
3: Meeting evening, Dean Groover. Oh, just an evening. How about two weeks straight? It was very good. Just
2: relax at home.
3: Dean Groover's too busy dancing. Dean Groover. Dean Groover doesn't believe in pauses. Oh, just an evening. How about
2: two weeks straight? It was very good. Just relax at home. Wait a minute, what is this you hear? Dean,
3: Dean Groover! doesn't believe in pauses. I'm Dean Groover. I'm Dean Groover. I'm Dean It was very good. Just relax at home. Wait a minute, what is this you hear? Hey, baby, I'm Dean Groover, And I'm gonna lay down some beats for you. Dean Groover's back! Oof. It
2: was very good. Just relax at home. Very good. Just relax at home. Wait, what is this you keep? Not much for you. quite no much.
3: You shouldn't leave your tools lying around the house. You might lose them. Thanks. Maybe you could finish that up tomorrow. Randy's trying to rest. She's not feeling well. Okay. I guess I'll be going now.
2: Wait, I have. Something for you to take care of upstairs. Wait a wait, minute. Wait, wait, what is wait, this wait, you hear? Fuck you.
1: you fuck up, ta- Russian Tara. <laughs> Bring back normal Tara. Bring back right. beige Tara.
0: A beige Tara to the rescue. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row, dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer.